The science fiction writer H.G. Wells is a pretty incredible guy. He was this really unique blend of part literary master, part historian, and part prophet. And he had this uncanny ability to look at the way things have been, to look at the way things are, and follow those trends and get an idea for how things might be. And one of the constant themes in his literature is this idea of of humanity taking natural resources, refining them, using them, mastering them, and developing this power and this technology, and then seeing where we go. And usually, in his stories, it doesn't go in a particularly good direction. But he has some really great insight to offer, and looking at that from, from a mind that was writing almost 100 years ago is just incredible. But while his insights into the future are really incredible, his insights into the past are often really eye-opening as well. And I love the way that he talks about the ironic life of, of ancient man. Before all the harnessing of the power, before all of the technology, before all of the things that we've become reliant on, he paints this picture in his book, The Last War, of what their life must have looked like. And this is what he says. Speaking of ancient people, he said he he knew no future then, no kind of life except the life he led. He fled the cave bear over the rocks full of iron ore and the promise of a sword and spear. He froze to death upon a ledge of coal. He drank water muddy with clay that would one day make cups of porcelain. He chewed the ear of wild wheat he had plucked and grazed with a dim speculation in his eyes at the birds that soared beyond his reach. This is a really frustrating picture of life. Here you have this person who has within his reach everything he needs to defend himself and to to keep warm and to drink clean water and to catch birds so that he doesn't have to eat grain and yet he doesn't know where to look. I think the most shocking sentence in that, that phrase, in that phrase is that he froze to death upon a ledge of coal. And it's such a haunting picture of someone lying on the ground, shivering while they die, when all he needs is to know that the coal beneath his body, if he could just harness the power of fire, he could heat himself all night and be comfortable and be secure. He had all the resources that he could possibly need just beneath his feet. He just didn't know how to take them. And he didn't know where to look. And so it took years of people discovering these things and being able to to find out how to harness the clay and the water and the coal and the ground and to take the iron and the ore and turn it into spears and swords to be able to be of use to anyone. And people had to show that to other people and teach their children and their grandchildren so they would know where to look and they would know how to live. A lot of times when we approach Scripture, we can find ourselves looking and feeling a lot like like the ancient people. The only life we know in Scripture is the surface-level life of Scripture because that's all we've ever known and that's all we've ever seen. And so we know the stories and we're familiar, especially with stories like the book of Jonah, where we know the details about what happened, 
But there's so much lying just beneath the surface that we never reach into because we're not looking in the right way and we're not looking in the way that we should. And so the vastness and the beauty of who God is and and what that means for us and how each passage of scripture shows us the gospel and God's plan to save his people, it just sits beneath the surface while we sit on top, freezing to death spiritually. And so before we jump into the text of Jonah, I want to spend one more week doing some introductory material. Last week we talked about the context and the setting of Jonah so that when we approach this story, we're not just jumping in to a foreign place that we've never been or never experienced, but at least we have an idea of the the culture and the context that the events of Jonah take place in. And today we're going to look a little more spiritually at the book of Jonah. And look at the spiritual context and the theological themes that are are woven throughout the entire book of Jonah, through all four chapters. And hopefully this will give us a little help as we go into the book of Jonah to not simply get lost on the details of the story, but to look into the story and see deeply into what God is revealing to us through the story of this prophet and the pagans that he went to to proclaim this judgment against who end up repenting and worshiping God. And we see so many beautiful things there. We just want to be sure that we don't miss it. And so we're going to talk about the themes that we're going to be seeing come up over and over again as we look through the four chapters of the book of Jonah. And so every Sunday as we come together, and then as you read this, and I hope you will throughout the week, then these will be the things that that will help us know where to find this, this rich, deep, beautiful stuff that's living in the book of Jonah that can be really easy to miss if we're not paying attention And so I'm going to read Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And this is the text that we're actually going to dig into next week. But we'll let that be the the catalyst as we look through the entire book this morning to see what's being taught. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid a fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And I just confess the times when, when I stand on the surface of your word and out of fear or ignorance don't dive deeply into the truth that, that you have sitting there below the surface for me. God, we thank you that as you tell these stories in scripture that they're not simply moments of history, but they, they teach us not about just the, the nature of mankind, not just moral stories, but God, they teach us who you are. They reveal to us your character, your grace, your mercy, your plan. They reveal to us Christ and the nature of redemption. And they also show us who we are in you and who we can be if we're not careful. And so as we discuss these themes that you've woven into the story of of this prophet and these pagan people, 
Help us to see clearly what you have for us. Help us to understand deeply the truth of your word. And God, help this to shape who we are and how we worship you and how we see you and also how we see the world around us. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. One of the themes that is, is most prevalent in the book of Jonah and something that's glaringly obvious from, from almost the first line, but really from the first three verses that we just read, and a theme that really hovers over the entire book is the omnipresence of God. This idea that God is everywhere at once and there's nowhere that you can go that can outrun the reach and the stretch of God. And we're going to talk about this in depth next week as we start to break down the text of verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. But right off the bat, in the very beginning, we see Jonah trying to run away. And his goal and his aim and his desire was to run away from the presence of the Lord. And this isn't an outrageous thought process in the ancient Near Eastern world. Because in these ancient Near Eastern religions, the gods, the deities, they were very regional. And so you would have a a deity of a city and there would be a temple there. And that deity would be believed to reside there. And those people were his people and they would worship this god. And then if you were to leave that city, you would usually leave that god behind. Or maybe you'd bring it with you to add to something else. But there wasn't just one widespread God over all this area. There were so many different gods. And so when you packed up and moved, you would usually just adopt the new God of the place that you moved to. But the Bible tells us a much different story about the God that we worship. He's not like the pagan gods who was bound by borders and bound to a certain group of people, a God who could be picked up or dropped off whenever you want. Yahweh, the God of Scripture, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the God that Jonah claimed to worship, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was a God who was not bound to a place. He was not bound to a building, but he's a God who held the entire scope of the universe in the palm of his hand. And there was nowhere to run away and there was nowhere to hide from God because he is everywhere and he is constantly present in the lives of everyone who's ever lived and ever breathed. And in every space and every inch and every piece of the universe, God's presence is there. And this shows us the magnitude and the majesty of who God is. The book of Jonah presents to us a God who is bigger than we could ever imagine or than we could ever fathom. But it also shows us the vastness of his plan and the scope of his grace. There's a, a twofold nature to God being omnipresent. On one side, it's a little horrifying. Because as Jonah finds out, there's nowhere that we can go to outrun God or to escape God's presence. We're never going to be out of his reach. There is no away from the presence of the Lord. And in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, that can seem like a very overwhelming, very frustrating, very aggravating kind of thing. But then on the other side, In those moments where we feel like we've gone too far. 
where we've reached a depth that God could never reach. When our rebellion has become so overwhelming that we've fled to a place that God will never find us, we're reminded that he is there with us. That there is no distance we could run that God is not there before we arrive. There is no depth that we couldn't fall to that God can't reach down and pick us up and lift us up. It is a comforting, beautiful thought to be reminded of the fact that there is no containment for God, but he will reach to us wherever we are. That's why Jesus tells us that that the shepherd has a hundred sheep and when one runs away, he leaves to go get it. But this God, this good shepherd, isn't abandoning the 99 necessarily because he's still with them. Because he can reach to the lowest of lows and the highest of highs at the exact same moment. His presence is a, a comforting and beautiful thing. Jonah reveals to us a God who cannot and will not be confined to one place or one people, and neither can his grace. And what's so amazing about the book of Jonah is this this story that so often we chalk up to a children's story for children's church or or something that we're familiar with and so we don't need to, to dig deeply into. As we read Jonah and as we discover the truth about how incredibly big and present God is, that he can be so transcendent that he is beyond what we could ever understand and ever know, but yet at the same time he's so intimate that he is with us in our deepest, darkest moments. We are reminded that that's who he is, and as we're reminded that that's who God is, it changes the way we worship. The book of Jonah shapes the way that we worship God. As we sing songs and make our confessions and our our confessions of faith and take communion and do all these things that we do Sunday after Sunday, as we do everything, whether we're eating or drinking to the glory of God, all of this stuff that we ascribe to worship, it should be radically changed as we read Jonah and we realize, I have not seen God as for as big as he really is. I have not recognized God to be as majestic and awesome and large as he really is. Because while God certainly does hold the whole world in his hands, he also holds the entire universe in the palm of his hand. And everything that has its begin and end has its begin and end in God. He is that big. He is that majestic. There's no way to grasp how vast and how incredibly huge and present he is. And so as we are confronted with that overwhelming fact, it has no, we have no choice but to change the way that we worship. We can't read about that kind of God and worship Him the same way that we did last week. And as we know more and more about the vastness and the size and scope of God every single week, every single day, every single moment, as we know this reality more and more, our worship should be changed and renewed and made more adequate. That's what Jonah has the ability to do, to show us not simply that God welcomes the pagans to worship him, so we should be really thankful for that because that's who we are, but that that God who welcomes the pagan and the prophet alike to worship him is so big and so incredible that there's nowhere that we could ever outrun him, and he holds the universe in his hands, and yet at the same time, he is intimately and passionately connected to every simple moment in our lives, even the ones that we feel like are completely meaningless, 
and worthless. God's omnipresence is on full display in the book of Jonah, and it's an incredibly beautiful thing. We also see God's sovereignty in the book of Jonah. In particular, God's sovereignty over the natural world and our circumstances. Last week we talked about the familiarity with the book of Jonah and especially the familiarity with the story about the fish. If you ask most people about Jonah and you want to give some details about it, those people are usually going to immediately jump to Jonah. That's the story about the fish, right? And in part, the fish matters. It's a really weird part of the story. It's a really strange part of the story. And so it's a part of the story that gets a lot of of publicity. But here's the amazing thing about the fish. Jonah's a short book anyway, only four chapters. But out of these four chapters, the fish shows up in two verses. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then the fish shows up again in chapter 2, verse 10, and it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. So out of all of this text, out of these four chapters of scripture, there are two verses and three references to the fish. The word fish is mentioned three times in the entire book, and it's just contained in these two small verses. And so while the fish might get a lot of publicity, the fish is actually a very small part of the story of Jonah. However, the fish does help us to understand a very big theme in the story of Jonah. Because in chapter 1, we see as Jonah hops on this boat heading away from the presence of the Lord, God sends a storm to bring him back. And then as Jonah's thrown over the boat, God brings a fish to eat Jonah and then calls the fish to spit him up on dry land. When Jonah goes into Nineveh and he preaches to Nineveh, he goes and sets up camp and God causes this plant to grow over Jonah so that he can have shade in the middle of the sun. And then, in one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, God ordains a worm to come and eat the plant so that the plant dies. And Jonah gets so angry and so upset about this plant and there's just something really cathartic about watching Jonah be so angry over a plant as he's in the middle of this rebellion and hatred for this people you're just really cheering on the worm but this theme through the whole book of Jonah is that God is sovereign over nature God is sovereign over the natural world and the things that we normally ascribe to just the way that things are. God is is working in every minute of that. We like to draw this line between the miraculous and the natural, between the supernatural and the natural, and yet we know how plants grow. We know the process to it, but Jonah reminds us that even though we know the process, that God is the God of the process, and that he can use those things for his good and for his will and for his glory. And what's even more amazing about how God is sovereign over nature in the book of Jonah is not simply that he can control storms and large fish and plants and worms, but with the incredible ease with which he does it. Think about this storm that we're going to look at in a couple weeks. Jonah gets on this boat with professional sailors. 
They do this for a living. And yet when a storm comes, they start throwing over everything that they have and they start praying to any God that they can because these professional sailors understand that even though they know how to sail a boat, even though they know how to do their job to the best of their ability, they have no control and no power over the storm. And yet God just gave a little whistle and called a storm And it came. And this sounds pretty familiar, right? Think about Jesus. When he's on the boat with his disciples, several of them professional fishermen who spent their life on the water. And the storm comes and they panic and they freak out and they're losing their minds because they think this is the one. This is the one that's going to kill us. And Jesus wakes up from his sleep. Challenges their faith walks to the front of the boat, and in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the waves, in the midst of the rain, he says, peace, be still. And it calms like an obedient puppy. That is the full power of God on display. It's not simply that God has power over nature, but that God's power over nature is so great and so awesome that he doesn't even have to break a sweat to do it. That he keeps the universe in motion by the power of his will and that when he wants a storm, he gets a storm. The, the elements of nature that are so foreign and so frightening to us, God has them in complete and in total control. Now, of course, when we read these stories, some of this stuff is, is hard to grasp and hard to wrestle with because the miraculous always is. And so when we talk about big fish and storms coming and going and, and plants and worms, it's, it's strange. But that's not the most impressive miracle in, in the life of Jonah and in the story of Jonah. John Walton The great Old Testament scholar says this. He says, if these be miracles, it's useless to discuss the gullet sizes and geographical habitats of dozens of species of whales or the chemical content of mammalian digestive juices and their projected effect on human epidermis over prolonged periods. If we wanted to discuss this sort of thing, we'd have to begin with first things first and ask whether or not God could talk to a man as he did in Jonah 1.1. Now to simplify that, John Walton says, if these things are miracles, if there's something where, where the supernatural God reaches into his natural world and uses it for his purpose and his glory, then we don't need to try to calculate the cost. We don't need to figure out what kind of fish could be in the sea at this time and what it would be like for somebody to be inside the belly of a fish for a few days and what your skin would look like when you come out. If we're going to talk about miracles, let's talk about the most important and most miraculous miracle in all of the book of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 1 when it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai. That the God who created the universe by the power of his word, who is all present and all knowing and all powerful, the God who has the strength and the ability to call a storm and to call a large fish whenever he wants without breaking a sweat, that that powerful, transcendent God is also able to speak to broken, sinful man. 
It's amazing and it's beautiful and it's miraculous. So God has this power over nature, this sovereignty over the natural world. And yet he also has the intimacy and the compassion and the care to be able to speak to his people. But we see that not only does God have sovereignty over the natural world, but as we look through the story of Jonah, we see God having sovereignty over every single circumstance that takes place. Even in the midst of Jonah's rebellion, as Jonah tries to run away from the presence of the Lord, everywhere this joker goes, people start worshiping God. While Jonah thinks he's running away, every single moment of Jonah's life is marked by God's fingerprints. As he runs to Tarshish, all of a sudden these pagan sailors start worshiping Yahweh, start worshiping the one true God. As he begrudgingly heads to Nineveh with this idea that he's going to preach about God's judgment and hopefully God's going to bring it, all of a sudden an entire city of people repents and starts worshiping God and it's incredible and it's beautiful Excuse me, and it angers Jonah because that's not what he wants to happen. But everywhere he goes, God is working. Every circumstance that he finds himself in, God is moving. It's an incredible testimony to the fact that not only are we never alone, but we are constantly moving in the rhythms of God's plan and God's will and God's grace and God's mercy, even in the midst of our rebellion. Jonah constantly ends up right where he needs to be because we have a God who is not only sovereign over nature, but he's sovereign over time and he's sovereign over circumstance. We also see in the book of Jonah, God's plan to save the world. The Old Testament is pretty Israel-centric. And so everywhere we look from Genesis to Malachi, it's pretty much telling the story of Israel. There are some strangers, there's some foreigners, there's the, the Ruths and the Rahabs that pop up from time to time. But Israel is, is the centerpiece. Sometimes Israel is the hero. Sometimes Israel is the go to the story. But Israel is usually very much involved. And for good reason, because God chose this group of people to be his people, to bring the Messiah into the world, and to have this incredible plan worked out through them. But Jonah is is different. Jonah is a book filled with pagan foreigners, whether it's sailors or peasants or kings, worshiping the God of of Israel. Jonah is the only Hebrew person in this story, and God sends him out of Israel to go to Nineveh. And so Jonah tries first to run to another Gentile or pagan nation, and he gets reversed around by this fish, and then he ends up in Nineveh. And so this whole time, Jonah is outside of Israel. And he's the only picture of what it looks like to be Hebrew in this entire story. And yet everywhere he goes, people start worshiping God. The book of Jonah is an embodiment of what we celebrate during Epiphany. 
Because the season of Epiphany, which today is, is that last day of Epiphany, reminds us that Jesus came to make manifest, to show the world the glory of God. And also to take the message of salvation, not only to the Jewish people, but also to the Gentiles. That the entire world, that no matter your tribe, no matter your tongue, no matter your ethnicity, that all nations will be reached with the gospel. And that's what we see happening in Jonah on a very small scale. Jesus even ties the story of Jonah in with his life. As he's talking about his death and his burial, he tells his disciples to to be paying attention for the sign of Jonah. And just like Jonah went into to this fish for three days, so we know that Jesus would one day go into the tomb. And when Jonah came out of the fish, he would go to Nineveh, and all of a sudden the Gentiles and the pagans would start worshiping God. And as Jesus came out of the tomb through the power of the resurrection, then that would be the moment when the gospel begins going out to the world to not only the Jew, but also to the Gentile. And that's how Paul would be able to write things like in Christ there is no slave or free, male or female, Jew or Greek, that all are one in Christ because the gospel is not for one people, it's not for one nation, it's not for one tribe or ethnicity or country, but it's a gospel that is good for the entire world and for all nations and people of all backgrounds will be called children of God. God has a plan to save the world. And Jonah is a a whisper of that. As we read the book of Jonah, it's God saying, Hey, listen, I've got something bigger coming. I've got something more grand. I've got something more far-reaching coming. And here's a little sample. If the people of Nineveh, if these pagan sailors with all their gods could abandon that and turn away and worship me, know that that's just a little sample of something better to come. This epiphany is coming. This good news to the world is coming. And so as we read Jonah, we can see ourselves in the pagan sailors. We can see ourselves in the Ninevites because we were strangers. We were far off that God, through Jesus, grafted us into his plan, grafted us into his family, reached out to where we were, and brought us in. And Jonah shows us that from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4. We also see in the book of Jonah the importance of repentance and confession. Jonah is a really great book to tie together the two seasons that we're a part of now. Because we're leaving Epiphany where we're reminded of God's glory being manifested through Christ and and the gospel going to the Gentiles. And we're walking into Lent. And the season of Lent is a season about humility, about brokenness over our sin, about fasting, about confession, about repentance, and about caring for those who are different, caring for those who are other, caring for those who are in need. When we look at the book of Jonah, there is a lot of confession and repentance that happens. In Jonah chapter 2, we see Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving. And in the midst of that, he is is very seemingly aware of, of the situation that he got himself into. 
And there's this moment of confession as he talks about his, his near-death experience. And when Jonah takes this word into Nineveh, it's an incredibly awesome picture of, of the people recognizing their sin, recognizing their disobedience to a God that they didn't even know. And when they were confronted with, with who he is, and they realized who they were, from the king to the peasant, they realized, oh my goodness, we are, we're not who we're supposed to be. And they fasted from eating and from drinking, and they tore their clothes, and they were in mourning, and they were broken, and they were sad, and they repented. They didn't just apologize, but they turned away from their sin and started pursuing after God. You see, this book doesn't just remind us of the size and the power of God, but it also reminds us of His righteousness. It also reminds us of His justice, and it also reminds us even of His anger and the present need, the ever-present need for sinful people, from the prophets to the pagans, to humble themselves and repent before God, to make confession for our sins, to come to God and say, I am not who you've made me to be. And I am sorry for my sin. I'm broken over my sin. And God, I need you to help me to turn away from my sin. And Jonah reminds us that all of us find ourselves in that situation. Just like Drew reminds us every week during the confession of sin, that part of the reason that we do that is because we need to confess our weaknesses to God and to, to pour ourselves onto his feet and trust him to pick us up and to lead us out of temptation and to lead us out of sin. And it reminds us of our need for a savior. But our weekly confession also reminds us of this incredibly important fact that when we come into this building, that there is not a single person who is better or worse, that we are all in need of God's grace and God's mercy. Whether we're, we're peasants or prophets, whether we are, are kings or sinners and tax collectors, every one of us is in need of God's grace and mercy. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us deserves whatever we get because we have turned away and rebelled against God. And so this is a calling and a reminder that no matter who we are, repentance is required. We also see in the book of Jonah the danger of self-righteousness. There's a lot of warning in the book of Jonah. The warning about our need for repentance, no matter who we are, no matter how good we think we are, no matter how lost we think we are, repentance is a requirement for us as we come into the presence of God. But think about Israel during this time. We talked about their setting. We talked about how well they were doing socially and financially and as a kingdom, but how poorly they were doing spiritually and how they were just caught up in this just pattern and lifestyle and, and just repetitious practice of sin. And Jonah is, as a person, 
a representative of, of Israel at that time. Jonah was a prophet. He, he had all the right answers. He knew all the right things to say, and yet he didn't care. And he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't want to be around these pagan people, and he thought he was better than them. And it was Jonah's self-righteousness that led him into this rebellion. Jonah embodies the cause of Israel's ultimate downfall because he had the right heritage, he had the right theology, but he was overcome with rebellion and a lack of care for others. And it can be easy to look at this story. I talked about how much I love the the last chapter of Jonah when God sends this plant and he kills the plant and Jonah just has this ridiculous pity party wine fest thing. And you look at that and you think, that's what you get, you little jerk. You hate the Ninevite people. It's good that you have some discomfort. You run away from God. I'm glad that this is, you're getting what you deserve. And it can be really easy to start wagging our finger at Jonah. But as we read through this story, it's not for us to look back at the folly of Israel or the ignorance of Jonah. But we should be looking for the Jonah creeping up in our own lives. The times when out of selfish ambition we run away and rebel against God, what God is calling us to do. When we look at the people in our world as other and as different and that we are somehow better or more evolved or more spiritual or more righteous than they are. And so because of that, we don't want to go to them. We just want God to destroy them while we sit back comfortable in our salvation. We have to watch for that self-righteousness in our own lives because no matter who we are, we have potential to fall into self-righteousness. We have potential to fall in to pride if we're not careful to see that coming up in our lives. And so as we look through the book of Jonah, let's not look with pointing fingers, but look at it like a mirror. Asking God to show us where I look like Jonah. Where do I start to look like Israel? Where are the places where I'm not compassionate and kind? Where are the places when I'm not pursuing what God is calling me to do with a passion and a fervor? Where are the places where I look more like Jonah and where I need to look more like the Ninevites? But then the book of Jonah also reminds us of something incredible. Because one of the themes that we see over and over again in the book of Jonah is the assurance of God's mercy when people repent. That there is an assurance of God's mercy when his people repent. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, which I hope you do, they're so important in the narrative of of redemption and God's big picture of redemption. And as you read through these prophets, especially the prophets before the exile, before Assyria comes in and takes over Israel, before Babylon comes in and takes over Judah, These prophets were desperately crying out to the people saying, listen, guys, you're not doing it right. You're sinful. You're worshiping other gods. You've neglected your first love. If you don't come back to God, if you don't pursue him, if you don't come back to the one who loves you, things are going to go so badly for you. 
And they would start telling them about what's going to happen. If you start doing this, then, then all of these bad things are going to take place. And then sure enough, the people kept rejecting the prophets. They didn't listen to him. They killed some of the prophets because they wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to be their own people. And so they didn't heed the warnings and they found themselves in the exact situations that the prophets said were going to take place. But the prophets also usually ended their writings with a message of hope. Oftentimes it was a messianic hope. Saying you are messing up and things are about to get really bad. But there's hope on the horizon. There's something better coming when God is going to take his people and redeem them and restore them and make them whole. That he is sending a servant, that he is sending a son of man, that he is sending his own son, as we find out later on in the story, to come and to make all things right and all things new. And so he's going to bring this restoration. And so even though things are going to be harsh, and even though your sin is going to bring this brokenness, take heart. Because there's still hope. The theme of repentance is beautifully coupled with God's kindness and his compassion and his mercy. The last sentence in this book is God having compassion on people. He says to Jonah, should I not have pity on Nineveh? A great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And I love that it ends talking about cattle. That seems so strange and so weird. But it shows the depth of God's compassion that he loves his creation deeply and intimately. And so when people come to God in repentance and in confession, there is this assurance that the God who is just and right and angry is also compassionate and loving and merciful. And so when people come to him in repentance, that he is faithful to forgive and not only to forgive, but to save and not only to save, but to restore. That's why every week our confession of sin is is coupled right with the assurance of pardon passage of scripture that declares about God's mercy and kindness and the reminder and the declaration that if you have trusted in Christ and repented of your sins, then you can be sure that your guilt is pardoned and your sins forgiven through the blood of Christ Jesus. And Jonah reminds us of that. If God is faithful to save the pagan sailors and to save the Ninevites through their repentance, then he is faithful to forgive us as well as we repent and as we confess. And Jonah is this incredible reminder that there is no sin and there is no distance that's out of the reach, not just of God's presence, but that's out of the reach of God's salvation. The sailors and the Ninevites, they didn't have to work. They repented and God poured out his mercy and grace freely on them without restriction. And so as we read through the book of Jonah, we are seeing a picture of the gospel. That a just and righteous and a God, a God who is angered by sin 
is also a God who loves his creation and loves his children deeply and intimately. And so when they come in repentance and faith, that he is faithful to love and forgive. And so as we read the book of Jonah, we need to be shocked. We need to be angered. There are times that we need to be overwhelmed. We need to be introspective. We need to be thankful, and we even need to be hopeful. But more than anything, we should be amazed that the God who called Jonah is calling us today. That the God who saved pagan peasants and foreign kings offers that same salvation to us as well. And the God who sends storms and calls whales loves you deeply and intimately. And he holds your life in the palm of your hand. And he is faithful to love you and care for you and forgive you and save you and restore you. And so as we begin looking through the text next week, Let's do so with hearts filled with hope and excitement, ready to dig into this book and to see beneath the surface. To not freeze to death theologically or spiritually because we are lying on a bed of beautiful coal, ready to warm us up and teach us about who God is and who we are and help us to see the beauty of God's plan to save the world.